Welcome to the Innovation in Government Show, sponsored by Kerasoft. Each month, we'll talk with industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Now, here's your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the discussion. My guest is Tony Cole, the Vice President and Global Government Chief Technology Officer for FireEye. Tony, welcome to the program today. Thank you, Jason. Happy to be here. Before we get started, let me set some context for our discussion. The two seminal moments over the last 15 years in federal government cybersecurity both came in 2006. The first is when the Defense Information Systems Agency required service members and civilian employees to use the common access card to log onto their computers. The second was when the Veterans Affairs Department employee lost a laptop containing the data of 26 million veterans. Both of these events shaped over the next 11 years the policies, laws, regulations, and actions by chief information officers in trying to protect data, systems, and networks. Despite all that focus, the tens of billions of dollars of new tools and services agencies have bought, the effort to harden federal computers and information remains a tremendous struggle. We all know the hack suffered by the Office of Personnel Management, which lost the data of 21 million current and former federal employees. And OPM, by far, is not alone. The list of breaches suffered by agencies grows monthly. And just this past May, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation reviewed almost 300 of the most popular federal websites and found 66% of the websites use secure sockets layer certificates, which underpins Hypertext Transfer Protocol Secure, or HTTPS, a common security feature most websites are using today. While 90% of all websites use something called DNSSEC or Domain Name System Security, only 61% of those websites use both HTTPS and DNSSEC. Now, beyond websites, the Federal Information Security Management Act, or FISMA scorecard to Congress, also shows other longstanding challenges, as well as some gains as well. The government's facing almost 31,000 cyber incidents last year. Agencies still fell well short of the government-wide goal to implement hardware and software asset management, to use malware and anti-phishing technologies. And on average, agencies were rated a level two out of five on the maturity model. So what can agencies do to further protect themselves and move from reactive to proactive cyber defense? Well, that's where our guest comes in, Tony Cole, Vice President and Global Government Chief Technology Officer for FireEye. Tony, let's just start at the, the attack surface, the attack vectors that agencies are facing that, that continue to grow. What can agencies do to really slow down these attacks? Well, you know, that's a topic we could discuss for many hours. So uh, I will focus on just a couple things. One, you know, you hear a lot of people say that, uh, you know, the attacks are getting more sophisticated and more complex. That's absolutely true. However, we need to understand the fact that attacks are only as sophisticated as they need to be. So you don't often see, you know, a burglar show up at your house. If they know you don't have an alarm, they're not going to bring an alarm specialist. So in the same thing, if they can break into a system using something less sophisticated and save that sophisticated attack for another day, they will do so. So we need to actually make sure that, you know, we implement the basics across the board, cyber hygiene. And I think that's really important, although it gets me a little frustrated. So we've been talking about that since about 1997. So, so that's still a challenge for us. It should be institutionalized at this point where you have the right budget in place to ensure you always have the, the hardware that can support the latest operating systems and you have your patching institutionalized as well so it's implemented as quickly as possible. But then you can start to focus on the more significant threats around your most critical assets across the board. So I think there's a lot that can be done, but I think those are two areas that we truly need to focus on today. I think the frustration over cyber hygiene, I think, is felt by across the federal community. We talk about it a lot. So the question goes back to, I think agencies have made some progress. I think OMB's cyber sprint back in 2015 and into 2016 has really changed in many regards that view of patching. Are you seeing that the cyber hygiene is getting better? Or again, it's some agencies are good and some agencies are still struggling. 
Yeah, there's there's some pockets of excellence. However, across the board, there's still an enormous effort that needs to be undertaken here. And I think this is one of the areas where we also need CIOs and secretaries at, at the uh, department level to really focus and push very, very hard to make users aware that it's everybody's problem. It's not a singular problem for the CIO, you know, in this security organization inside that agency. It's everybody's problem. If you can turn the people into sensors by creating some type of gamification where you turn security awareness into a game, then I think we'll be a lot more successful in this area. It's interesting you bring up gamification and you bring up making this aware, not just for the CIO or the CISO, but really across the agency. First of all, the gamification, you see a lot of agencies now doing the, the fake phishing attacks and kind of helping people understand, hey, this is a bad email and this is what you should be doing. And then when you talk about the broader perspective, that's part of the risk management framework, the risk management attempt in things like A130 and and other documents. Risk, that's been the latest buzzword, but it's really nothing different than what we've seen over the last you know, 20, 30 years. Yeah, it, it absolutely isn't different. I mean, risk is critically important, and it's one of the things that we need to focus on for the federal government. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, in time, the administration, Congress, you know, and uh, OMB are all on the same sheet of music, and we start to see, you know, scorecards that actually have CIOs focused on risk mitigation that takes them to a place of compliance versus actually focused on a compliance scorecard. I think that's critically important for people to understand the difference across the board, you know, not to secure everything because you can't, you can't win this game across the board. You can only succeed in small battles continuously by stopping the impact of attacks. So focus on those critical assets and get those locked down and understand when and one is breached so that you actually stop any data exfiltration. A couple of key things that have been going on over the last you know, five or seven years around cybersecurity regarding risk, but also understanding the hygiene piece is the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, the Einstein Program. Now they're up to Einstein 3A. Give me a sense. FireEye is a big participant, at least in CDM, if not both programs. What are you seeing? Are they being successful? And what other efforts are in place? There's some successes out of that. However, we need to focus on the fact that you know this problem is going to continue to evolve across the board. So as we bring more and more assets, you know, into uh, the IP-enabled space, we're going to see this problem continue to accelerate. So we've really got to get our arms around it. So we need CIOs and we need departments and agencies thinking about this as an evolving problem. So, in fact, I'll relate this across the board to the physical world. There's lots of lessons there that we haven't applied to the cyber realm. For instance, here in this studio, there's probably a door that says it's alarmed, and people know automatically, don't push that door. You're going to get a lot of attention you don't want. So how do we build that into users' minds as well so they start thinking about that, as well as, you know, how do we get a security organization to actually start thinking about the physical assets from that perspective as well. So apply threat intelligence to it so that you can actually start to focus on risk mitigation for those assets. By that I mean, you know, who is after you, why are they after you, and what are they after? And that is actually gonna help you build your cybersecurity strategy for risk mitigation versus actually focus just on compliance. It's interesting, I wanna go into the cyber intelligence piece, but let me take a step back. The physical world is interesting because initially when you talk about cybersecurity and you've been around long enough to know that's the vision they had. You, you build a big wall, you put a moat yeah. around it, it's the layers of defense. And what we've seen over the last, you know, maybe three, five, seven years is the defense in depth approach has been really pushed aside. People say that you can't have enough depth and you can't have enough defense because there's always going to be a breach. Give me a sense of the from the physical security world. You mentioned understand the who, the what, and the why, but let's go, let's dig deeper to that area. Most organizations will actually look at their environment that they're in 
So they'll see when a breach happens, you know, maybe an intrusion prevention system or a firewall gives them an alarm. So they'll send a response team down, they'll do analysis on the box, and they'll say, yes, this is breached, and they'll clean that up. They'll look for any potential other indicators So from those same devices, and that's it. They're done once it's cleaned up. So what they're not doing instead, that's critically important when you look at the physical world, you know, uh, take the U.S. Department of Defense, you know, the the best military in the world. You know, they're not going to go into any battle space without understanding, you know, where is the adversary? What capabilities do they have? So where are they actually placed in there? What does the uh, the hill look like that they're trying to take for an analogy? So. But when you look at the cyber realm, we're not doing that in the vast majority of government agencies. And that's something we should be doing. So who are those adversaries? What nation states or organized crime groups are they coming from? So what are they after inside your agency? Why are they after you? So, And when you start to understand that, then you can actually start to hunt inside the environment looking for additional indicators. Do they have other beachheads, compromised systems that they may have compromised long ago that uh, you know you're simply not aware of because they're not beaconing out? So hunting in that environment is critically important, and you can't do that unless you understand the adversary. All right, so I'm going to push back on you just for a second, okay? Sure. One of the things about the physical world is, generally speaking, you can see your enemy. You say that they're on that hill. We know what they look like. We know where they're coming from. They're coming from the other side of the hill. With cyber, because of the federated way it's set up, because attribution is so difficult, you know, hey, this server's coming from, pick your country, but it's actually a different country that's using that country servers to attack you is is that maybe part of the reason why the the physical side transferring to the cyber side is so difficult i will tell you that you can see your adversary but it is a lot more difficult exactly as you stated so and that's part of the challenge is actually architecting and instrumenting your environment so you can pick up those indicators of compromise by consuming threat intelligence and understanding all the different adversary groups that are out there trying to break into your environment so it is certainly more difficult because the attribution as you stated is very difficult but if you understand though who the adversaries are out there then you can actually start to go in and hunt for those indicators inside your environment things like you know understanding what what folders do they typically use what do they actually change on the names of folders what tools do they use what IP addresses do they typically come from you know there are lots of indicators that will actually help you understand those adversaries the other piece of this is the threat intelligence, and you brought that up uh, several times. The, the idea that threat intelligence can help an organization, agencies, the, the private sector, uh, has really grown over the last few years. What's the state of threat intelligence today, and where do you see it having to go over the next you know, year or two or three? Part of the challenge today is as people you know, don't clearly define threat intelligence. We hear a lot of folks actually say, well, it's indicators of compromise. You, know, you can actually get it from anywhere. Everybody shares that. And that's definitely not true because what you want is contextual threat intelligence. You want to understand you know, what APT group, you know, what advanced persistent threat group is attacking you. Who are they? What nation state do they come from? So what tools do they use? What, uh, you know, as I stated earlier, what folders do they go after? But understanding, you know, uh, what assets they're trying to gather. There's a, a ton of information about those adversaries in context that can help you protect your environment. And if you're just actually using, you know, uh, hashes and uh, IP addresses, so for actually hunting in your environment, then you're not doing it properly because you're not doing it with an adversary-focused perspective. And that's the big difference that you can actually have if you get the proper threat intelligence into your environment. One of the things about threat intelligence is there's several different programs. There's a lot of companies like yourself that maybe provide threat intelligence. The government has a threat intelligence. There's the cyber threat intelligence 
integration center that the government has set up. Is there too much threat intelligence now? How do you kind of weed out what's really intelligence and what's just noise or, or, or static? One of the things that you can do very well for government, and it's a huge advantage that they have over the commercial world, and that's taking intelligence from their own intelligence apparatus and combining that with commercial threat intelligence to give them a perspective that they hadn't had in the past. So, And that's adversary-focused then from both sides. So that can be very beneficial to them. They can actually end up with too much threat intelligence, and part of that, uh, you know, leads to uh, the high attrition rates we see around security analysts. So because they get uh, just worn out from alert fatigue, and that's actually where you bring in, you know, orchestration to build courses of action to take all those false positives off their plate, so they can focus instead on the hard problems. All right, you brought up that word orchestration. I know we'll talk about that in the next segment. Orchestration, automation. There's plenty to talk about, but let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump into those topics. You're listening to the discussion, Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. FireEye helps government agencies with next-generation endpoint solutions. To protect against today's threats, endpoint solutions provide integrated intelligence detection and remediation. FireEye's endpoint solution expanded visibility identifies suspicious activity to help determine threats. FireEye can stop advanced attacks other security technologies can't even see. FireEye, offering integrated defense that correlates all endpoint activities, actively addresses threats. Learn more at FireEye.com endpoint. Tune in on Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. for the Innovation in Government show sponsored by Kerasoft. Learn from industry experts who enable innovation and make government more responsive and secure by advancing key technologies. Innovation in Government examines a wide range of topics and evaluates their payoff. Cybersecurity, big data, mobility, cloud computing, and more. Innovation in Government, Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. Search Innovation in Government. Welcome back. You're listening to the discussion Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Tony Cole, the Vice President and Global Government Chief Technology Officer for FireEye. Now, Tony, before break, we were talking a little about the, the why agencies are still struggling to kind of secure systems and networks after all these years. We, the old cyber hygiene discussion came up. But the cybersecurity area is always going to evolve. We've seen it evolve in the last six months. We've seen it evolve in the last six years. So what areas do you see specifically that cyber defenders really should focus on today? I like how you frame that, Jason, and I will tell you it's, it's fascinating to me. A lot of people don't realize how much this is evolving and how uh, how few successes there are in this space. And I think it's important for us to realize that you know this is not a war that we're going to win. We can only win the battles across the board. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, in my role around uh, working with governments around the globe, I actually have Google Alerts set up that tell me about news articles around cyber breaches for government. So in a couple of years ago, I used to just flip through those each day. Now I have a rule set up in Outlook that actually funnels them into its own folder because just in English, just in English, I literally get hundreds of them every single day. So about breaches that are taking place or efforts in cybersecurity. So I think my point is this will continue to evolve. Organized crime is learning from nation states that are doing attacks in the cyber realm and nation states are learning from organized crime. So from that, we're going to have to continue to focus on uh, how, how much this is going to evolve. I think that people need to accept the fact that if you build a 10-foot wall, they'll put up an 11-foot ladder and actually uh, try to get over it. So you need to architect and instrument your environment so you can quickly detect that breach and not let them steal anything. That's a win. That's a win for us. If we can actually stop the adversaries from stealing data, even if they got in, close that hole and move off to the next one, so then we're, we're actually making progress. Are you seeing that agencies and other organizations are really coming down to the data level and using encryption, which we know there's a big push post-VA, their breach, but even since then, 
or one of the hot topics that I'm seeing as we get closer to 2018 is around you know backend attribute exchange. So you, Tony Cole, has access to this data, but you can only read it. You can't write it, or you can't even read it or write it, or whatever it is. Are those some of the, the technologies and, and changes that you're are you starting to see happen? We're starting to see that happen, but it's still moving very, very slowly. I mean, you still see people that travel all the time, and they're down the street at a coffee shop, you know, on the Wi-Fi, and they're not running a, a virtual private network, a VPN. You know, so it's critically important that we further educate you know, all of our users so they understand the risk. And then for CIOs and, and chief information security officers to put in place encryption, uh, data should be encrypted no matter where it sits. So, and that's that's critically important for us to be successful. There's a lot of things that we're gonna need to do to continue to evolve this space if we're gonna succeed. You know, today we still see, I mentioned earlier, people will go in after they see, you know, uh, alerts at the perimeter and they'll go clean up the box and then move on. What they're not doing is they're not actually, you know, tying together data from that endpoint so, and tying it together with data from the perimeter. So correlating that data across the board, and that's actually gonna give you that more adversary focus and understand exactly what they're doing in your environment. So there's a lot of things we're gonna to need to do if we're gonna to continue to keep up with the adversary. One emerging thing I keep hearing, and you brought it up just briefly, was orchestration. And then when you add to that, the idea of orchestration and automation to deal with these never-ending threats, talk a little bit about what you're seeing around those two areas. It's really important, you know, uh, years ago when I was at the Pentagon, you know, we wanted a new tool and quite literally could not fit a new monitor into the uh, into the area that, uh, you know, the monitoring was taking place. So I think that's really important that we actually continue to evolve our environment. Since that time frame, we've seen many, many CIOs and uh, CISOs actually focus on best in breed. So and that actually has completely, completely turned things on end where there's way too much data for security analysts. And I talked about the attrition problems because of alert fatigue, because they're seeing data from so many different areas, because they have all these disparate tools. So I think pulling together a single pane of glass with all of the alerts in it, and then actually building automation to respond to those alerts, so along with courses of action, is really what's going to help security defenders across the board inside security operations centers. And from that point, you know, well, just to give you an example, here comes, you know, a, a phishing alert, something that FISMA's called out numerous times is a major problem for the federal government. Here comes a phishing alert from a known bad domain. So you can actually build a course of action. So it's just a push button or you could even automate it where that phishing email is actually quarantined, dumped off, and that domain, you know, actually added into your environment with very little work on the analyst part. And that's critically important that you actually start to do that so that we can get rid of 80% of those alerts from all those devices so we know what's real and then focus on the 20% that's important. It's almost like you're talking about cyber hygiene. Just do the patching and that will stop 80% of the problem and you can focus on the other 20%. Is that where if you will, a lot of this is heading because of the automation piece. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to point out, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier, you know, the level of complexity and sophistication of attacks is only as high as what's needed. So if you aren't doing those basics, you know, then the adversaries are going to compromise you without actually pulling out, you know, their, their secret tricks that they have to actually get inside your environment because the easier ones are working because you're not defending against them. Hence, some of the uh, WannaCry, Petya, not Petya, some of those that were very, very successful where they should have been stopped, you know, for most organizations across the board. So I think we have to continue down that path. So putting in place an architecture that has automation and orchestration and built courses of action. You talk about WannaCry and Petya. Who was the most successful around that? Maybe not the most, but who's very successful? The federal government. I did a story on this, and one of the things that came up is 
is back in 2012 timeframe, OMB came out and said, hey, uh, why don't you get rid of those Windows uh, 7 and Windows XP where that had these holes? And the government did a really nice job of cleaning up those old systems. And then when WannaCry hit, they were not impacted like we saw in the UK and some other places around the world. I think I think that's one of those success factors. The other piece of this you talk about is architecture, and that we got to bring up cloud. Where does the cloud play a role in this discussion around security? It's very interesting you bring that one up. There are so many organizations I have discussions with, and one of the first things around the globe, one of the first things they say is, "We don't have enough experts. How can you help us?" And that is one of the recommendations I make that you know you look at cloud providers and what capabilities they can provide for you because cloud providers can actually help solve the problem around not enough security experts because you know they're focused some of them specifically on cybersecurity and they bring in a pool of talented experts that you may not be able to hold on to especially in the government space today regardless of some of the efforts that are underway. It's one of the reasons why FireEye actually took our email threat prevention so and actually went through FedRAMP you know for that and focused on that area. So as well as, you know, have helped some customers migrate off, you know, of uh, of their standard structure that they have and move it to the cloud. In many ways, I know Fire is not a cloud provider. You guys, as far as I know, don't get into the infrastructure as a service or platform as a service. Am I correct on that? We do some components out there. We're doing more and more in the cloud as our customers have requested us do more and more in the cloud. And we've migrated a lot of our tools. We actually are hybrid, especially for government. They want it, you know, on-premise. We'll provide it on-premise. If they want it in the cloud, we can do that as well. And that's where I was going is security in the cloud is starting to gain some, some momentum. I uh, sat down with Maria Rote, the Small Business Administration CIO just recently, and she talked about CDM in the cloud, and they were the first agency to do it. And you know they had to go to DHS and say, this is what we're going to do. And DHS kind of looked at them like, okay. <laughs> so I think, is, is that a movement also? Is that not just CDM, but security in the cloud? Is that something that agencies, is, is that happening? It's starting to happen a little bit. And it's very important you know, that uh, the government understands if you're going to actually you know, a user provider for security in the cloud. You can get a lot of expertise that way, but it's also important that there's a structure where you keep enough expertise to validate they're providing what they say they're providing. And part of that challenge as well, we, we talked about it earlier today, is uh, you know you need to actually make sure that the cloud requirements are consistent so the vendors can actually provide standard structure for you. And you're going to get a lot more offerings that way that are well-structured. So we can't have each government... Uh, area of government do their own requirements. So it's got to be more consistent. Standards, requirements. Uh, I think exactly. you're talking about that FedRAMP program. I've heard of <laughs> yes. that somewhere, right? Yes. Now, you guys, uh, if you remind me again, you guys are, had put something through FedRAMP recently? We did. Our email threat prevention, our ETP product, is uh, FedRAMP authorized at the moderate level. So uh, we're very excited about that and uh, you know, very happy to partner with the government to do that. I want to take us down a, a little bit different path now. When we talk about security and we talk about the threats and what can be done, there's a lot of other efforts that are being taken kind of on the peripheral or at least uh, not necessarily on the technology side, but really the policy side, the regulatory side that can also slow down th these attacks and reduce attack service. Talk about what you're seeing on that side of the, the ledger. We've been very pleased at uh, the efforts that NIST has made. So I love the fact that NIST opens a kimono and asks for input. So on all the new policies and guidelines that they're trying to create, that's fantastic. We love partnering with them. Uh, they do a, a wonderful job. Uh, I continue to hope that more emphasis is placed on the very large efforts that they undertake, where it's mandated many times instead of just a recommendation for government agencies. And then as you look at the government, you know, I think one thing that they have to ensure they understand is this is an evolving threat. And architectures they put in place, they're going to have to continuously look at that as well 
that this is going to change. So how do you actually build policies around that where there's no, you know, here's a new architecture. We're going to rely on this for the next five years. It's not going to work. So you need actually a group looking for at least a civilian. So the DOD and the Intel community looking two to five years out on where this may evolve and ensuring that they're building the right products or working with industry to bring in those right products to solve these challenges. And then across the board as well, you know, we still are too focused on FISMA and FATARA scores versus actually ensuring that all the proper metrics, so for success in winning these small cyber battles continuously, are actually incorporated into those scorecards. So and I think that could potentially help tremendously as well, changing policy around those scorecards to ensure the right things are in there. As you said, the sprint was great. It helped tremendously. But there's still this is a, a ever-moving target, you know, that we're going to continue to try to hit. It's interesting you you think that the FISMA scorecard, as an example, is maybe too focused on compliance, not enough with what's really happening. And I think there's been an effort from OMB. I think Congress has made an effort with the FISMA Modernization Act to really change that view, to move to risk management. You know, there's 800 controls or whatever there is from this. If you don't have all 800, that's okay. To me, what I'm seeing, at least, is the IGs, the auditors, are having more trouble moving to that risk management perspective. Do you get a sense that agencies are kind of caught in the middle, that Okay, they want to move to risk, but they also know they don't want to get slapped in the wrist too often by their auditors. I think that's a major issue, and I think it's going to continue to happen. You know, uh, somebody that may be focused on all the right things, if those scorecards aren't laid out properly, could sit up there in front of a committee, you know, and uh, on the hot seat, so to speak. So in talking about their score, that's not where they want it to be because they focused on this. The worst case is actually to be called up there in front of that committee. So where you've got a great score and yet you were breached. So you've got to find that happy spot, you know, where, you know, Congress, OMB and the administration are all working together to make sure we're actually grading them on the right metrics. So if they are compromised, then maybe nothing was exfiltrated and they can actually show that. And that's a win, you know, versus actually, you know, uh, being smeared all over the press, you know, for for a breach that uh, didn't really impact the agency. Instead, it was just a learning experience. Don't blame the press. We're just the messenger. <laughs> you know, we're just doing our job here. When you look at the broader cybersecurity perspective, what should people take away from our conversation? What kind of advice do you have? I mean, beyond hygiene, hygiene and hygiene again, yeah. uh, we don't want to beat that drum too much. I want people to, to realize this is going to continue to evolve. So where we are today is not where we'll be six months from now, 12 months, 18 months from now. So we need to actually build in automation, orchestration, so courses of action inside that orchestration. So we tie together all of those best-of-breed products that people have acquired over the years so they actually have a holistic solution. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning down the line will help. I don't think it's ready today. I think threat intelligence, so you can actually hunt inside your environment, is going to be critically important. And I think people need to realize, very, very important, that you heard me start this by saying, you know, we're not where we're going to be 6, 12, 18 months from now. And I think that as we see more ICS systems get connected, more IoT brought into the environment, some say we're going to have 20 billion devices connected by 2020, and we see 5G, where many of those IoT devices will be directly connected to the internet and your perimeter goes away. It's really important that we actually start planning for that and implementing an architecture that is an evolving architecture if we're going to be successful. You bring up IoT. We could have a whole nother conversation just about IoT. Is that really the next big cybersecurity challenge for a lot of organizations, agencies alike? It already is. I think people started to wake up to this when uh, you know there were some attackers that were actually screaming at little kids in the middle of the night, you know, through their compromised cameras. Probably the big wake-up call for cyber professionals was the attack against DIN, D-Y-N, 
last year, year before last, there was, you know, a DDoS attack, distributed denial of service attack at speeds that nobody ever contemplated could take place at that time period. And it was mostly from compromised IP-enabled cameras and things of that nature. So when you add another 15, 20 billion devices like that, and then you add 5G into that, where they may have 5G chips baked into them, we have enormous problems. All right, you just laid out a very scary world, but uh, hygiene and automation and orchestration are three big keys to that. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the discussion, Innovation in Government, sponsored by Kerasoft on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. I'd like to thank my guest, Tony Cole, Vice President and Global Government Chief Technology Officer for FireEye. Tony, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. It was great to be here. Enjoy the conversation. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com and search Innovation. Thank you for listening to the Innovation in Government show, sponsored by Kerasoft on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. The entire discussion can be found on demand at Federal News Radio, keyword innovation.